The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Pray again one more time um, just for the teaching and just for just my peace. So. Um, God, you have just been faithful to me um, as you've worked in my heart um, just over this last month or so, and I just pray, God, that I can be faithful, I can be clear, and that your truth um, can just be spoken, and that um, either if it's encouragement, conviction, um, whatever it is, Father, that I would be able to um, just speak that to the people here. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So this, this was... Yeah, this 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 was a tough psalm for me, and I'm. It was good to hear all of your dialogue before because it really, just like the rest of the psalms, it is such a progression as you read it and as you study it, just what God just intends through it. And I just there's just a lot to this psalm, and it's just been really encouraging to me. So I just pray that I can just be as clear as possible, um, just in that. So, okay. So there are a few things that we can be um, certain of, of in our life, and one of them is that we will have hardships, disappointment, and trouble, and overall tough situations. Um, from an early age myself, I have tried to avoid hardship or tough situations as best I could. If I knew I was going to get a spanking as a child, I would hide in the corner of my bedroom and make it as impossible as, uh, as I could for my parents to reach my backside. Um, I enjoyed math in high school, surprisingly, and I was able to make it to a calculus class in high school. And on the first day of class, I saw how much work was involved, and I dropped the class that afternoon. Um, If something just got too difficult or required too much of me, I quit. I injured my ACL playing soccer in high school and gave up my chance to play volleyball in college because I just didn't want to go through the training process, uh, and I didn't want to have to rebuild that strength. Um, As I became a Christian in late high school and early college, I realized that this character flaw was even more apparent in my relationship with Christ. When I faced difficulty, I didn't have the endurance or the knowledge to be able to have peace, hope, or perseverance in in these situations. I just wanted out. Um, I started college at Greenville here in Illinois, and I experienced homesickness and really struggled there my first semester. Um, Instead of sticking it out and giving it more time, I transferred home to a community college after my first semester. And today, I can now see through my growth in Christ by grace that it really was my lack of maturity, and more specifically, my lack of knowledge of God and his word. I was not able to handle difficult situations. I retreated. I had no perseverance. So tonight, through Psalm 77, I want to address how remembering and meditating on God's word is vital in the Christian life, knowing that it will be full of hardship, disappointment, and struggle. So we are going to look at three points in the text that lead us to this. We're going to look at God's call to openness and honesty in our relationship with him, our duty to act when God prompts us, and how remembering and meditating on God's word helps us to understand who God is and what he is capable of. So in Psalm 77, our author, Asaph, a prominent musician and singer in David's court, is experiencing some trouble in Israel. His situation and his situation of his people have changed, and he is questioning God's presence and goodness through it. 
Asaph writes this psalm as an individual lament. His people and himself were most likely facing some sort of military defeat or national setback. So there's, there really wasn't a clear answer on what specific situation he was facing, but it's just very apparent that it was like some sort of natural disaster, some sort of military defeat that was going on. Um, and that through this, as we can see, that Asaph remembers a better time, that there's, that's throughout the text as a theme that why, why, why are things the way that they are now? Why aren't they as good as they used to be? And I'm sure um, we can all relate to that. <clears throat> so we will see throughout the text um, that Asaph uses language that makes this a personal cry to himself. And this is what you guys touched on with Andrea's last question. But we will also see that he is addressing an issue that is facing all of his people. And that Asaph is assured that God will redeem all of his people in the end. Okay, so to begin, Psalm 77, we're going to see how God wants and encourages us to be honest with him. Asaph cries aloud in verse 1. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to to be comforted. So this first section, we just see Asaph's situations and feelings. He's crying aloud to God because of his distress and trouble. Again, we don't know specifically. We just know he's upset, he's emotional, he's crying out to God. But there are a few things to note about his words here. First, the intensity and the openness that Asaph is describing. He is crying aloud to God openly and directly how he is feeling, and his body is matching the condition. I'm sure you can picture it in your mind. Here's our psalmist in his room. It's nighttime. He's crying aloud. His arms are outstretched. He's stretched for God. He's stretched for answers. He's asking for comfort. This is a person who is at the end of his rope, and he's just ready for answer or change. He's reached his tipping point. This speaks to me personally here through the difference in day and night. We'll notice that in the daytime, he says, I seek the Lord. But in the nighttime, his hand is stretched and his soul refuses to be comforted. In the daytime, for for myself, when something's on my mind, I can think more rationally. I can hold it together. I have daily obligations like my little children to attend to. But when my, when my heart is heavy and my soul is hurting, the nighttime is where I can't find comfort and where my mind gets deeper and deeper out of control. I toss and I turn. I'm restless. Um, Brian, Brian, Brian said I should include this story, so I'm going to. <laughs> so Brian and I used to live in an old home on Holmes Avenue, right over here by the church. And it was our first home. It was very old. And long story short, we learned a lot about home ownership and our old houses, or just old houses. Um, After living there about six months, we had our first spring flash flood, and with it came significant amount of water in our unfinished part of our basement. This happened again while Brian was out of town a month later, and I was left to handle it by myself, and I spent the whole night with a five-gallon shop vac trying to vacuum water out of our basement. (laughs) After that experience, every time it rained significantly at night, I had terrible anxiety and dread. I could not sleep. I could not rest. I would stay up all night listening to the rain and watching my weather app. So, when reading this psalm, my first thoughts were back to Holmes Avenue and the anxiety that plagued me on rainy nights there. I give this story to say that I'm sure we can all relate to restlessness and worry at night. 
It plagues us more than during the day, and it keeps our, he- it keeps our hearts heavy and our situations dire. So the main point through this section of scripture is seeing that God desires our honesty when our hearts are the heaviest. God includes scripture like this to reassure us to be open even in our darkest emotions. In Timothy Lane and Paul Tripp's book, How People Change, they discuss a similar lament psalm, Psalm 88, when discussing in their terms life's thorns or hard times. They discuss a few truths about these hard times and why the Bible addresses them so clearly or in, and so frequently. First, God understands the full range of our human experience, from supreme joys to crushing sorrow, and the promises of the Redeemer come to people who live in a world where such things take place. God's honesty about these experiences invites us to be honest about the things we face, Going to God with despair, doubt, and fear is an act of faith. The Bible describes not an idyllic world, but a world where good and bad things happen. There is a lot of comfort here in their words. God understands, and he has written the Bible in a way that makes all of our feelings approachable to him. This portion of the psalm teaches us our need to be honest with God no matter how hard or troubling the situation is or when we feel like our emotions are too heavy or too dark for God. We are called to an intimate relationship with him, and even when we feel God has disappointed or abandoned us, like Asaph is feeling, we need to seek him out. The Bible is filled with people who are suffering and who are experiencing deep emotions. We should not feel guilty or unfaithful because we are feeling this way. In the psalm specifically, and I know Amanda touched on this last week, there are more lament psalms than any other category. This shows that life is hard and God knows that. And God equips us with ways to help in times of despair through his word. So I believe that just this opening section really was meant to teach us that his word, God's word, encourages our honesty. So verse 3 continues, When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled, I cannot speak. So we are going to see that Asaph uses the words remember and meditate throughout the psalm, particularly three times together. This should cause us to pay attention and look for application on how we should practice these two methods together or why he included these two methods together. So in the first section of remembering and meditating, we see that it causes our psalmist heartache. So when he remembers and when he meditates, it causes him to moan and it causes him, um, or it causes his spirit to faint. So it seems that the meditating and the remembering is making it worse or putting more salt in the wound. But I think we need to look at, but what I think we need to look at here is that what Asaph is remembering and focusing on. He's focused on himself and his trouble. We will see that the other mentions of remembering and meditating take the focus off of himself and onto God, and that causes his reaction to change significantly. So I think it's important for us to first define what remember and meditate mean. So remember simply means to bring one's mind to an awareness of something. We do this frequently and without practice. Remembering can be enjoyable. It can be hard. But it is something that comes naturally to us and most of the time without effort. Meditate, on the other hand, is a word that requires more practice and is something that I personally can't say that I do well. It requires more time and focus, and too frequently other less things take precedent. 
And I read a chapter in um, like a spiritual discipline book that I had in my library shelf all about the spiritual discipline of meditation. It's by um, Richard Foster. And it was a very good chapter if anyone is just just contemplating or thinking about what, what does it look like for me to meditate. Um, but that's just a side note. But um, anyway, so meditate, on the other hand, requires more practice. Um, meditate means to muse, and it is a word that's related to music. Tim Keller writes in his Psalms devotional, when we put words to music, they go to our heart. When we meditate, we work the truth down until it affects our heart. Meditation is deeper, and it focuses on planting a truth deep in our soul. So it's important to see that in verses 1 through 4, he is directing his thoughts and feelings towards God. He's directing them to him, but he isn't feeling any different right away. He's expressing his emotions and his feelings, but he's not getting the immediate change that he's asking for when he's calling out. I know I myself personally, I love immediate feedback. I like immediate change. I like immediate relief from my trouble. But God doesn't have to give us that, and God usually doesn't give us that. So God is calling Asaph in this psalm to spend significant time away from himself and focus on God and his work. So the psalm doesn't end here, and for us, our problems aren't solved or aren't filled with hope and perseverance thinking on ourselves. Our growth and peace come from focusing on God and his work. And we are going to see that through what happens next to our psalmist. So to continue, verse in verse 5, he writes, I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. First, it's important to address that during Asaph's distress and despair, the only time God has acted so far it has, has been in verse 4. And he says, you hold my eyelids open. God causes Asaph to stay awake in the night, and through this prompting or commanding, this is where Asaph then is able to make this inquiry or diligent search, as seen in verse 6. God desires for Asaph to have growth and movement here. God uses these painful, hard moments to keep our eyes open. God prompts, and we act. So the psalmist so far has focused on himself. I am doing this. I am feeling this way. My heart is feeling this way. But God, in his goodness, uses this moment to say to Asaph, no, you're going to focus and you're going to meditate on me now. You're going to search and you're going to find me. So praise God for this mercy in Asaph's life. Yes, brokenness and disappointment is hard, but sometimes brokenness is necessary for us to get to these revelations, to make these inquiries. Our lives are constantly up and down. We could wallow in what could have been or the way our situation should have played out, but God, through all times, calls us to keep our eyes open and see him. So to track with our psalmist so far, he calls out to God with utter honesty, and through this honesty, God calls Asaph to turn his attention off of himself and onto God. And now we are going to see what kind of revelation he has through this diligent search that God's asked of him. So in verses 7 through 9, <clears throat> Asaph asks these questions, which we talked about a little bit, which review or reveal truths about our psalmist and God. Will the Lord spurn or reject forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in his anger shut up his compassion? 
So now Asaph is taking the focus off of himself, and he's focusing on the things he knows about God, but he just isn't seeing right now. His remembrance and meditation causes him to take the focus off of himself, and, he, and, and in this section, he begins to turn to God. And, and you guys touched on this when you were speaking of this part in the homework when she talks about these questions. And this is, this is just my interpretation, and this is kind of what I feel he was doing here. But um, So when he takes the focus off of himself and he begins to turn it on God, um, he begins to ask these questions because I think he's trying to talk himself into really that belief that he knows is there. I think Asaph really knows these truths about God. I think that they are instilled in him, but I think he needs this as he goes through this progression of, okay, I, like, I'm talking this out with myself right now. And there's where these rhetorical questions come from. So he needs to ask these questions as he begins to make the focus from self-focus to God-focus. I believe that Asaph knows deep down that God is gracious, that God is steadfast and compassionate, but because he's not seeing it or feeling it right now, he questions it. Does God really have steadfast love for me? He doubts, he questions, but within each inquiry, his mind becomes more enlightened and more aware of the truths of God and his work. So through his meditation and inquiry, we can turn the attention off of ourselves and onto the God who is capable of all things. So for us, this meditation and inquiry happens through the reading of scripture and time in prayer. Again, God's word is vital in all situations, especially in situations of hardship and, and trial. It takes the focus off of ourselves and allows us to remember who God is and what he is capable of. And I think that this was just Asaph's way of getting there, that he needed to kind of wrestle with this himself in order to get to that point. And this really is just a progression through God's, through God's enlightenment that he is making. So we are now reaching, in verse 10, the psalm's climax or turning point. Then I said, I will, to, uh, I, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. So appeal or supplication here is such an important word as we consider what Asaph is doing. He is making a request or a plea for God to use the years of his right hand to bring assurance or confidence back to himself. So he uses the phrase, God's right hand to express God's power for the sake of his people. God has worked in the Israelite past and proven his power and favor for them. So we see God's right hand also in Exodus 15:6, where it says, Your right hand, O God, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. God has used his right hand in the Israelites' lives to provide drink, food, a home, health, and life for his elect people. God has shown might and ability in the past, and Asaph needs these reminders to give him the faith to remember that God has the power to do this, or he has the ability to do this again. God is changing Asaph's attitude about his current situation through reminding him of his work and his power in years, pre and in years past. So praise God, again, that we have access to this same history. We can appeal to the years of the right hand of the Most High when we reach moments of disappointment and trial. God's word provides so much richness and wealth in this. The Bible is full of the years of the right hand of the Most High. For Israel, God carried his people out of Egypt and into a land and life that he promised. 
He has given life to the barren. He has protected and cared for those who trust in him through floods, through persecution, through plagues, oppression, death, trial, and testing. God's word shows us time and time and again how God remains faithful to those who call on his name. So through our remembering and meditating, we can hold to the years provided in scripture and find reassurance and confidence that God will not abandon us in our situations. We can also remember and appeal to the years of our own life and the lives of people we know personally. I find great comfort in remembering the ways that God has been faithful to me and my family. God has provided people, jobs, a church, a home, salvation. These reminders serve as a bedrock for God's movement when I'm not currently seeing it or feeling it. Verse 11 continues, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. So Asaph confirms his shift in mindset and states that, yes, I will remember your work and I will meditate on what you've done in the past. And again, we see his use of remember and meditate here. This is our third exposure to these terms together in this psalm. After Asaph chooses to focus on God's deeds and wonders, he then turns into a time of reflection and meditation. I think God is calling us to look at Asaph's example of significant time and reflection. Asaph considers God's work in the past and finds a changed mindset and hope in his current situation because he takes the time to think and remember about God's work. And not only that, he meditates and lets that truth resonate deeply inside of him. He continues to soak the word deep into him and it's in, until it's a truth that's firmly rooted in our soul or in his soul. So for us, with our access to the Bible, God calls us to serious time and study of his word. We are given this history, and God uses it to restore and encourage our faith, even when we feel disappointed or distraught by our current situation. God is still moving, and he will complete his work as he has done throughout Scripture. God says throughout Scripture that we are to carry his word with us, that it should live in us, be on our minds day and night, teach it to our children, find rest in its promises, and devote ourselves to it. Romans 15.4 says, For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might find hope. So we will face times like this of despair and disappointment, but do we have enough knowledge of the Bible, and have we spent enough time reading and reflecting on God's work and promises? As believers, God calls us to a life filled with his word. It should be ready of, readily available and ready to speak into our own lives and into the lives of people we come into contact with. So to continue, remembrance and meditation cause us to see truths about God's character through his work and deeds in verses 13 through 15. So through his remembrance and meditation, Asaph now unfolds characteristics about God's character. He has, or he gives three characteristics of God in, these sec- or in this section. He talks about his holiness, his power, and his work as a redeemer. He says, your way, O God, is holy. What God is like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made your might known among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. So through his remembrance and meditation of God and his word, Asaph now focuses on God's character. 
So the more we know and the more time we spend in God's word, the more knowledge we will have about God's character, as seen through Asaph's example. So this should be our motivation for studying God's word. We will grow in our understanding of him, and this will grow us to know him and to have a closer intimacy with him. So we will be in tough situations, but will we have the foundation and confidence of God's character who proves true time and time again in Scripture and time and time again in our own lives? So Asaph's first characteristic of God is that he's holy. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is like our God. I think we can learn a lot from the way that he, or he starts his acknowledgement about God. He states that God is, like, or is unlike anyone else. God does not work the way that we do or see things the way that we do. His timing is perfect, and his plan is ordained from times of old. He is unlike anyone else, so why do we try to question or manage his plan? Or think we could possibly come up with something better. God is above all, and his plan is perfect, because God is perfect. So after he states his holiness, then he goes on to talk about God's power. You are the God who works wonders. You have made your might known among the people. So not only is God not like anyone else, but he also has the power to work wonders. God is more powerful and capable than anything or anyone we could imagine. I think the Israelites would resonate this with this because of the power they have seen from God and their redemption story. God has shown up in mighty ways and has worked wonders to keep his covenant with his people. And lastly, so after his holiness and after his um, power, lastly, he focuses on his work as a redeemer. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. So God is holy, God is powerful, and God redeems. What three awesome truths come from the remembrance of the work that we have seen, in, that we have seen God do in the life of his people? And lastly, with redemption, God redeemed them the Israelites, and will continue to use his right hand in their life until his work is complete. This should speak into our own hearts so clearly, because now as New Testament believers, we can firmly stand on the same three truths, but have the ultimate redemption through Jesus Christ. So God used his right hand, his power for the sake of his people, to defeat death once and for all, and to send his son to live and die for the penalty of our sins. We can remember God's holiness, his power, and that he has redeemed us in hard and disappointing times. He will not leave his work unfinished. God will redeem until the work is done. So lastly, verses 16 through 19 retell the Exodus journey through the waters, the parting of the Red Sea. So as we read this last section, pay attention to his use of water and his illustration of power in the last few verses. We will then discuss why Asaph specifically chooses this act to end and reflect on as he remembers God's power and ability. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in a whirlwind, and your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. So the psalmist chooses to close the psalm and his reflection with the greatest act of redemption for the Israelite people, the parting of the Red Sea. This was the climactic moment of the Exodus. 
The situation looked impossible for the Israelites when Pharaoh and his troops charged Israel. Moses raises his rod, symbolizing God's presence, and the sea opens up, allowing Israel to go through, but then closes on top of the Egyptians. The Israelites were beyond any human help. Their situation was completely hopeless. But God, great in his power, saved his people. The psalmist is remembering this act and remembering that God again can save his people when the situation seems impossible and without hope. So let's look again at the language the psalmist uses in this section of the text. There's lots of imagery, there's lots of colorful language, and the mention of water is seen numerous times. So there's intensity and there's power in these verses. God is active, God is alive, and God is full of action. God has not changed, and God will continue to be active, alive, and full of action for all time. But I feel the most important and the most repeated element in this section is the use of water. And we touched on this a little bit in the discussion, but um, in the creation account, which those of you who did the Jen Wilkins study, I'm sure you remember this, God made order from chaos, and he did that specifically um, through his work separating the waters and making order from the expanse of the sea. So the sea throughout the Bible narrative and literature in general um, most of the time means chaos. So the sea was large, it was unknown, it was vast, and it was unsearchable alone. So God, in this account, turns chaos or the water to order and makes a way for the Israelite people. So I think we can see symbolically that it's not just water that God is controlling when he is parting the sea for the Israelites, but God is saying implicitly that he will take the chaos and the fear of their life and turn it into his plan and his order. God takes fear and turns it into trust. The water was to be feared and was full of the unknown. God took the fear of the sea and the chaos it represented and turned it into a safe way and a path for the people. And specifically in verse 19, God used the chaos he created to make a way for the people. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. This establishes God's ability to clear a path for the people out of the chaos into a place of rest and safety. What comfort this gives us. God uses the chaos of our lives and our situation. He takes our hurt and he turns it into trust and safety. So how did the psalmist get to this place of trust now? Through the remembrance and the meditation of God and his work. So to finish the psalm, the psalmist ends with hope that because God led the people like a flock through the exodus, he will continue to lead his people again. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Redemption came for the Israelites, and redemption will continue to come. God's promises do not return void. God does not abandon his people. God always does what he says he will do. God is over all and in all. He led his people then, and the psalmist is assured that he will again lead his people like a flock. The good shepherd, the ultimate shepherd, will take the staff gently and with compassion and will bring his people back again. We now know that God has fulfilled his promise ultimately through the blood of his son. He did not abandon us. He did not leave us in our sin. He did not leave us to face life alone. He willingly gave us Jesus to live and die and stand in our place. 
He freely gave the people who are quick to doubt and worry his most precious gift, and he did this as a kind shepherd. So as we close, let us remember the cross today when we face disappointment and trouble, knowing that God has not left us or is unable to fulfill his promises. If God, who freely gave us his son, or if God freely gave us his son, what do we have to be afraid of today? God will not leave his work unfinished. Let us cling to the Bible to remember that daily. We have to fight for joy. We have to fight to remember. And we have to fight to persevere. And we have to fight by taking the time to be good stewards of the time that God has given us. There is nothing more important or worthwhile than the time spent with God and his word. We need to rise to it in the morning, meditate on it as we walk along the way, recite it to our children, speak it to our husbands, and muse on it while we sleep or when we fall asleep. Life is hard and life will continue to be hard. But if we are not actively remembering and meditating on God's word, What power do we have other than our own will to help us in tough and disappointing situations? So let us be a people that remember and meditate on God's word in all situations. Let it be the first response on our lips when we feel down or disappointed with the way our day has worked out, when our children are disobedient, when our husbands disappoint us, when our plans fall through, when our house is a mess, when our parents age, when we experience loss. I pray, God, that we can have so much of your word stored in our mind that it rushes out of us like the waters of the sea in Exodus. To end, there is a similar situation in the book of Habakkuk, where Habakkuk questions God's justice and wisdom in his situation. Habakkuk learns to wait and trust in God throughout this book. And Habakkuk finishes this book with these verses. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. So my prayer for myself um, after studying this psalm is that I would be able to rejoice in the Lord no matter my circumstance, no matter if God is long to answer or if my answers never come. I will be glad in God my Savior, and I will know that the only way that can be true is through a real work of the Spirit and my diligence as a disciple of Jesus Christ, who deserves all. So my diligence comes from remembering and meditating on God's work and his word, and it's just a matter of if I'm willing to put in that time, if I'm really willing to make that a vital or an an aspect of my life. Um, That's it.